At the start of today's briefing on uh, air pollution and climate change, we're really pleased, uh, more than pleased, uh, it's really special to get Dr. Jacobson and Dr. Ramanathan here at the same time. I've had a heck of a time scheduling both of you in at the same time and uh, had some other things go wrong as well. And so we meant to do this about four months ago, and here we are four months later, and that's how long I think it took to get all the pieces in place, schedules and everything. Uh, having said that, uh, Mark's from Stanford University. He uh, expertise is atmospheric chemistry, aerosols, and the relationship between air pollution and climate change, and linking that to uh, policy as well. Um, he's a distinguished award winner from the uh, from the um, one of the research medals from the American Meteorological Society. And uh, he's going to speak to us today. He's going to be the second speaker, and he's going to speak to us about uh, the linkage, the causal linkage between greenhouse gas emissions and air quality and health. And so I think one of the, one of the first papers, as far as I can tell, that established a direct linkage between uh, health and uh, mortality and uh, CO2. Uh, Dr. Ramanathan is going to kick off the, um, the event for us today and talk to us about the role of black carbon and other aerosols, Asian brown clouds and things like that, which he will lay out in some detail, and their impact both on air quality and climate change. They both have a, a, a pretty large climate contribution, and uh, the good and bad part of it is they're short-lived and he'll explain what that's all about as well. But I think it's a good sort of combination, uh, having both of these people on hand who've looked at aerosols for a long period of time. Mark's got uh, something like 50, 75 peer-reviewed publications to his credit as well. Dr. Ramanathan has uh, got almost 200 peer-reviewed publications, um, has an award from the papacy in Rome. I think you're the only person I know in the research community that has such an award, um, uh, including several uh, scientific medals as well, a member of the National Academy of Sciences. I could go on and on, but I need to turn the mic over to these folks here. So with that, I'm going to ask Dr. Ramanathan to kick us off, and uh, we'll get the ball rolling. Thanks for coming. And Yeah, can you? Good. <clears throat> Tony, thank you. I'm uh, really delighted to uh, share some of the work going on in terms of air pollution and uh, particularly black carbon on the uh, regional and global climate. And in the, on the one hand, it's a problem. You know, we already are hit with so many... What? It's an echo. Is it too loud? Maybe cut down the volume a bit. So, you're still there. Maybe just do the volume It seems to get worse when you're close to your computer. I see. <laughs> How's that? How's, yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I think it's good. Larry, do you get an audio signal? No. no? We can hear your voice in the air, but I can't hear you through the headphones. Is 
Oh, so I think now it's okay, isn't it? All right, good. We already have enough bad news about uh, global warming and climate change, but you know, the Greenland ice sheets melting and etc. So who needs another bad news? Unfortunately, I have another bad news for you. And, 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 and the, but there are also opportunities here to combat global warming. Those are the things I'm gonna to touch on. First, starting with uh, atmospheric brown clouds. What are these and where do you see them? That's really the brown cloud, or we call them smog, back where I come from, in Los Angeles. And until about a decade or so ago, we used to think of it as a local or urban issue. And, and now we know otherwise. I'm showing you here similar brown clouds you know, streaming across like a river. In fact, uh, um, um, Tony introduced and he said Asian brown cloud. When we published this paper in 2000, uh, 2000, 2001, I called it uh, South Asian brown cloud and Asian brown cloud and ha had my wrists slapped very hard by India and China. But we liked the acronym ABC, so we changed it to atmospheric brown cloud. So just for, <laughs> for the pu public at large, don't call them Asian brown cloud, atmospheric brown cloud. And it's kind of scientifically justified. I'll, I'll show it's you know, found everywhere. So basically, what we mean by atmospheric brown clouds is particulates, which are scattering light, and that's why you see them. The next is, what is black carbon? And this is a series of images I taken from an aircraft when we did this Indian Ocean experiment. That's about 500 kilometers from the nearest major source of pollution, Bombay, and west coast of uh, uh, India. Here I'm about 1,000 to 1,500 kilometers away. The haze is still there. And I'm about 22,000 kilometers, 2,500 away from the nearest source. You still see the haze. We had to go to almost to Diego Garcia before we could see clear skies. What do we see? These are filters we collect and then take what's called electron microscopy analysis. And you can see these are the particles nature produces, sea salt and so, you know, sulfates coming from the ocean in terms of organisms. And, and this is the ugly particles we produce, and the, the, what you see here is the soot particles, black carbon. Okay, so we can see them, it's not mysterious, it's there. The next is what are the sources for these particles? First is, of course, smokestack, and this is automobile, you know, you get NOx, or if it's diesel, you get uh, black carbon and soot right from the automobiles. Biomass burning, agriculture, and biofuel cooking. By the way, this is uh, my uh, grandmother's ancestral home. I've sat in that kitchen and enjoyed the best meals of my life. But I'm gonna come back to my uh, grandmother's house towards the end of this. So the question you should ask is, why should my grandmother worry about what cars we are driving here? Likewise, why should you here worry about what she is cooking with? Take a close look at the next movie. It'll show you how fast things are transported in the atmosphere. So what you'll see is that in a matter of two to three days, air from China goes all the way across Pacific, and I'll show you actual data we have collected on this. So while our Chinese friends are sending their gifts to us, we are sending our gift to the, our European friends, and the Europeans in turn send it back to Central Asia. So the basic thing is we are all in each other's backyard. So we shouldn't think about pointing fingers or solving the, it's really a global problem and we got to work on this together. 
And you know, every time I look at this, I see new things. You can see how air from you know, biomass burning in the Amazon region can travel all the way across the Antarctic in a matter of two to four days, okay? It's about, I've timed it, it's about a factor of three slower than a Boeing 747, okay? If you get up in Korea and travel to California, this air will come about a factor of three slow, but it'll come there. So what are the significance to this? So let me just give you a background. I need to put this you know, brown cloud problem and black carbon problem in the context of global warming, okay? So think of the greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide is the one major, but that's not the only one. Their lifetime is about 100 years or so. So because of fast transport, these greenhouse gases cover the entire planet like a blanket, okay? Just like a blanket on a cold winter night keeps you warm, not because the blanket gives you any heat, it traps your body heat. That's exactly how these greenhouse gases work. It traps the infrared heat coming from the planet, okay? So we are basically, nature has given us a blanket, you know, this natural greenhouse effect. We have made it thicker. And we know exactly how much thicker we have made it, and I'll talk about that. But by that itself, just like your body, the planet should get warm. And the question is how large and how soon and by sheer dumb luck, as we are putting these greenhouse gases, we also put, this, put these particulates. Some of these particulates coming from sulfur dioxide, sulfates and nitrates, they act like mirrors on this blanket. So I gave you a blanket, and now there are mirrors on top of the blanket, and they bounce the sunlight back before they reach, okay? So you can think of it as, oh, this is, this is sort of uh, good. But on the other hand, it's only a, you know, a blessing in disguise. We are made of what I call a Faustian bargain. It has masked the warming. And the question is, how much has it masked? And how soon are we getting get rid of this mask? Okay? But if that was the only issue happening, life would have been simpler, at least from the scientist's viewpoint. But in addition to this, we also put the soot. Okay? The soot acts like make this blanket to an electric blanket. It absorbs sunlight and heats the blanket. And then the blanket communicates to the body. So we have put these mirrors, cooling aerosols. We also put this heating aerosols, which is the black carbon. And what's all the net sum of all this? And I'm coming to this. This is a paper, you know, a report, a WMO report we published in 1984. And it sort of preceded a paper we had published. And these are all the uh, members then. It was so nice to work with those days. And I knew everyone working in the field, about 10 or 12. And now there are about five, 10,000. And in fact, Rafe Pomeranz, who is here, we used to work together on this issue. The thing I'm talking about is that when I hear from the news media and the policy, we are talking about the climate change problem primarily as a CO2 problem. It is a major issue, but that's not the only issue happening. We concluded this non-CO2 trace gases contribute as much as CO2, okay? And the reason is some of them offers the so-called low-hanging fruits to combat the global warming. And that's the message we have missed in this focus on CO2. So IPCC, of course, agrees with this view. This shows that what we call radiative forcing, and I'll again convert this in terms of my metaphor, that is the CO2 effect. And these are the other gases, methane, uh, halocarbons, this is the CFCs, ozone, and nitrous oxide, and there are you know, many other species. That's basically the thickening of the blanket, 
Okay? Compared to the natural blanket, it's about 2.5%, 2% thicker. But in the unit of forcing, it's about 3 watts per square meter. What do we mean by that? The watts the same as the light bulb, 60-watt light bulb. So 3 watts per square meter of the Earth's surface is equal to burning a 60-watt light bulb for every 20 square meter. Let's think of it as a bedroom, small bedroom. How many such bedrooms are there in the planet? 25 trillion. So the heat we have added is equivalent to burning 25 trillion 60-watt bulb day and night throughout the year. And we've been doing this for the last 50 years or so. So we shouldn't be surprised the planet is warming. The surprise is why it has not warmed larger than what it has. And I'll address that. So that's the blanket. And these are the mirrors, okay? sulfate and nitrate aerosols. This is our own paper which just came in Nature this month, uh, last month. And this is the IPCC. The IPCC estimate of the black carbon heating effect, that's the electric blanket effect, is about a factor two to three smaller. But there have been papers, particularly Jacobson, Dr. Jacobson, who is here, Jim Hansen and Nazarenko, and Stanford, this is the Caltech group. They've all been getting this larger estimate. The main distinction between these estimates and ours is ours is obtained from, derived from observations. Satellites, we make aircraft observations, we make surface observations, we synthesized it. And it turns out our estimate agreed with these three modeling groups. When you add these two, that's what you hear, you finally see the masking. And the masking effect is negative, as you would think. So that's our estimate. It's not very, very far from IPCC. So we are sort of roughly, we are all in agreement. But there is a huge uncertainty, at least factor of two uncertainty here. There is 10 to 15% uncertainty there. So now the question is, this is short-lived. The lifetime of these guys are 10 to 15 days. So in this distinguished building, and we have several here who can influence policy, let's say you are successful in the air pollution. See, our concern about these guys have been on air pollution, fatalities, ecosystem destruction, acid rain. It's all the same brown clouds. Let's say if we get rid of this, they will be gone. If you stop the emission today, they're gone 10 days from now. Then you would see this full blast of the greenhouse warming. How large is that? Okay. In fact, we had, you know, many of you have heard of this from the news media. We think this whole science has last five, ten years. Not really. It's been going on for nearly a hundred years. And my own paper with a famous meteorologist, 1980, we predicted this warming, and we said if it occurs, we should see it by the year 2000. One of the, you know, most detailed quantitative analysis. It's a real-time prediction. Of course, we now know IPCC says we have seen the warming. It's not uniform. This is global average temperature record taken right off of IPCC. There are you know, hiccups, up warming and cooling and warming. But then we see gradually the trend is accelerating. Okay? So if you look at this overall and allow about 20% about of this 25 due to natural variation, the total warming is about 6 tenths of a degree Celsius. But we had predicted 1.5. So what happened? Either our prediction is wrong or there is something missing, okay? So now I'm coming to the so-called committed warming. This is a sort of a concept I, you know, we wrote in a paper in 1988. I'm pleased to see this has now become quite, you know, prevalent use. What do we mean by committed warming? We've got these greenhouse gases thicken the blanket. 
and we got this mask, air pollution, and if you remove the mask, no matter what we do with the greenhouse gas, just the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, how much will it heat the planet? That's what we mean by committed warming, okay? Using the earlier models, the committed warming was a degree and a half. Now that using the IPCC sensitivity, we come up with this committed warming is about two and a half degrees Celsius. So what's the problem with that? The problem is the European Community Commission and many groups here have defined the so-called dangerous anthropogenic interference with climate change. And they're saying the European community says it's two degrees. Now the view is we shouldn't think of it as a single threshold. There are multiple thresholds. For example, the Arctic summer ice models predict would disappear by about one and a half degrees. And the Himalayan glaciers, source why I'm focusing on this, it's a source for headwater for most rivers in the Asian region. So this is sort of a range in which the various climatic elements would be tripped. What this testing shows, no matter what we do with the CO2 emission or the greenhouse gas emission, because the stuff which is up there is going to stay there for decades or a century, the planet is already is going to go to this 2.5 degree warming. Okay, the so-called dangerous threshold as defined by the European community and the United Nations, it's already in our rear view mirror. We are driving fast. The reason we haven't seen this is this masking. So I'm showing here, out of this 2.4, the realized warming is about 0.6 degrees. That's what I showed in the record. And about half a degree is stored in the oceans. The ocean will belch it out in the next few decades. That's the IPCC conclusion. And that's the masking. So when you add it up, you come to close to 2.4. What it shows is that the observed warming is only one-fourth of that, but it's consistent with this estimate. So that's the global part. Surprisingly, this fact has not been realized by many. It's all there, but it's not communicated. So I've, we have just sent a paper to the policy section of the PNAS on this. Now let's talk about regionally. So there are globally, there are reasons to focus on this mask because over the next few decades, the climate change is going to be more determined by what we do to this mask. And I'm going to conclude with that. So regionally, the black carbon emissions, uh, this is a paper, this is a nature paper, just last month. 75% of the black carbon commission is here, but we know it's also coming other parts. And this is what we determine from satellite observation, aircraft observations, the heating. That's the electric blanket effect. Okay, you're heating the blanket directly by sunlight, by the black carbon. But this black carbon and this mirrors are intercepting sunlight from reaching the ground, so which we call it dimming. So that's the dimming effect. Okay? Some of this is show sunlight over South Asia and China have come down by as much as 7 to 10%. In other words, they are darker compared to a pre-industrial, and we have in-situ measurements to substantiate it. Okay. What is the big problem with this? I just want to show you, you know, this is so large. This is showing this heating is about almost 30 to 50% of the background solar heating of the air. We're not talking about 1 or 2% here. So that looks too large. How did we conclude that? I want to show you, we, we, for the first time, this is unmanned aircraft. We squeeze in my lab miniaturized instruments, put into this aircraft completely autonomous, 
And we launched three of them simultaneously. This is something you can't do with manned aircraft. That's why we went to this. And we captured the brown cloud in between our aircraft and measured directly the heating. Sunlight, how much black carbon is there? So we had one-to-one -one attribution. And that's what confirmed those values. Oh. I'm not going to, uh, at the same time we were doing this in India, there was this new satellite called you know, Calypso. And this is a Tibetan plateau. It showed how the brown cloud is surrounded both sides of the Himalayas. That's from the South Asian side. This is from the China side. And the Caltech model, when they put it, they show the black carbon heating warming of these elevated regions is as much as the CO2 warming. And we now, it has not been highlighted. It's my personal view. One of the potential disasters which is happening, if not waiting to happen, is the retreat of the Himalayan glaciers. The reason is, it is providing water for over 2 billion Asians. The Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Indus, then the Mekong for the Vietnamese, and the Yangtze River, the headwaters is coming from glaciers. Unfortunately, two-thirds of them are retreating. When the glacier is retreating, your river flow is large, so people think, what is the problem? But once they have gone beyond the 50% point, then things start getting dry, okay? So we are, and this is an opportunity for the Asians that while very little they can do about the global CO2 warming, that's a global problem. This is the problem they can address locally, cutting down the black carbon emissions. So that's the opportunity part. That's not the only thing happening regionally. If you look at the monsoon region, over the last 50 years, the Indian monsoon rainfall has come down. We know about the Sahelian drought, and the Chinese, there's a monsoon shift. These you can't explain from greenhouse warming. There are various models in my group, Australians and the NASA groups are showing you need this ABC effect to explain some of these changes. Undoubtedly, natural variation is happening too. Okay? So the last thing I want to point out is that the black carbon is also now is a major source attributed to the Arctic sea ice retreat. And there are studies which are saying somewhere between 30 to 50% of the retreat may be coming from black carbon. Here, it's a different effect from what I was talking about. It's not the electric blanket effect. It's not the dimming effect. It's not the greenhouse warming effect. It's the fact black carbon deposition over snow darkens the snow, increases its sunlight uh, absorption. Okay? There are several groups have done that, but this is the most recent study, and it's sort of nice summary. It is showing how the forcing of the snow is changing with the season, with latitude, because the sea ice is mainly in north of this, and the warming it's contributing to that, so maybe between two to four degrees. So again, for us here, this is an opportunity, cutting down the black carbon emission. Maybe we can slow down the retreat of the Arctic sea ice. So I've talked about the, the, the climate change part. Now I want to spend the next 10 minutes on what can we do about it, okay? The opportunity side. This shows the CO2 emission, how it has increased 1955 to 2000, we are now putting out about seven and a half gigatons of carbon in terms of CO2. Now, this is another thing that we careful. We have black carbon and we have carbon molecule in CO2. So we should, you know, it's, it's, a, it's difficult to keep track of all this, but this is, we are talking about carbon in terms of black CO2 emissions. And our energy growth, if you look at the world energy outlook, the world energy growth is gonna go up by about 1.8% per year, at least for the next 25 years. Now, at least three-fourths of that growth, if not 80%, is coming from fossil fuel. Okay, we still have not figured out how to 
switch that. So if we go on this path, by 2050, let me just talk about 2030, our emission will go to 12 gigatons, and the concentration will go to about 450 ppm. And if you still do nothing about it, by 2050, you're on this path to 750. So what's recommended by this group, the Princeton Engineering Group, is that if we come to a flat path by 2055, and then go down, so then we maintain it to 500 ppm. What does that mean? Remember the committed warming I showed 2.4 degrees? Believing our IPCC climate models, that's a big caveat. If you go to 500, that warming will go to about 3.3 degrees. So we're not talking about reducing the warming. We are talking about not letting the committed warming go too large. But to do this, they are proposing one thing is not going to work. They're talking about this wedges, two different things. Okay? I mean, they have multiple solutions for that. But if you focus on 10 to 20% reduction in black carbon emissions, that could or might accomplish, there are some issues I'll talk about, equal to one wedge, which is equal to 25 gigatons of carbon reduction okay, in 15 years, 50 years. And then you contrast the cost of it, we have to find out what's cost effective. So let's look at the black carbon emission. This is the emission as of year uh, 2000. Our data is a little bit old, 2002. This is US emissions, the EU, OECD, EU East, Asia, South and Asia, uh, Eastern Asia, okay? But if you look in terms of BC emission per capita, it's interesting the US emission is as high as Eastern EU or Asia East. So we have, we have a long way to go here. We can reduce our black carbon emissions. And, and particularly if you, you know, compare the per capita emission in the OECD countries, uh, clearly the technology is there. But I want to talk about some low-hanging fruits in the Asian region. Oh, before that, the other thing is about you know, uh, China's emissions and us. This is, shows how, in this particular, we were doing an aircraft experiment, how black carbon travels across the Pacific Ocean and meanders around into the West Coast. And we were flying our aircraft, and these are observations over several mountain sites in the Sierras in the California region. And this is the models which we tuned. And then we used the model to figure out about 75% of the black carbon above a kilometer over the west coast of the US is coming from long-range transport. Okay? So there is interest for us to sort of solve this problem from both sides of the ocean. And we also found this, this student thesis work of mine that this black carbon is depositioning, depositing over the CRS. Almost it's very efficient when there's snowfall removing the black carbon. Okay? So we are trying to study this further using our UAVs. As you know, during the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese have cut down their emission. So we are going to be flying our UAVs from Korea for months to see if we see systematically air coming from Beijing. Is it lower in pollution than other parts of China? So now coming to the uh, solution, it turns out this is our simulation using a regional model. The ABC black carbon loading over this region, you can see how it's a massive giant plume. Okay? And here we did the simulation just reducing biofuel cooking. Remember that my grandmother's was, let's pick on her. Okay? So if we cut down the biofuel cooking emission, just that, it's just like wiping your sunglasses off. Hey, you know. So most of it goes away. And fortunately, we know how to cook without biofuels, okay? 
So we are promoting a project, and, and I've talked about this for the last five years, nothing is happening. So we decided we'll propose a pilot project. We are taking a village in the Himalayas, about a population of 15,000 rural region, and switching the cooking from biofuel cooking to solar and biogas plants. You know, just take the same cow dung and organic waste, put in this biogas plant, it becomes methane. Make sure you don't let the methane escape, it's another disaster, but you burn that efficiently, okay? So what we are going to do is to instrument this village with you know, control towers and follow this region with satellites and have indoor sensors first to document what is the epidemiological health effects of black carbon, what is the local effect, and how much is it saving the global warming potential. As our Dr. Jacobson, he's one of the world's experts on this, it's not that straightforward. You know, you emit black carbon, then you emit other pollutants. Some of them are mirrors, some of them are this electric blanket. So you really need to do an active experiment to figure out what's happening. If it was just an experiment, you can say, are we experimenting with people? And there my answer is, first of all, you know, uh, to summarize all this, a 10 to 20% reduction in global BC emission would be a wedge for equivalent to CO2. The key thing I want to point out is that that's not supplementing CO2 reduction. I think of the black carbon as more buying time, about 10, 15 years time, for us to figure out how to deal with the CO2 issue. Okay? It has got regionally tremendous advantages, reduces melting of snowpacks and glaciers, retreat of Arctic sea ice, mitigates load on the monsoon. In India alone, indoor cooking contributes to half a million deaths. That's the angle we are pursuing with the local governments to support this, okay? And of course, it has got huge rural development and poverty alleviation because these women, I know from my own experience when I was young in India, they spent hours collecting this wood because most of the wood around your house is already gone, okay? So it'll you know, create more, it's got other social issues, but the key is if we can steer about a billion rural Asians towards greener technology using this. So it has got CO2 mitigation options. Sort of a win-win situation. I don't see any downside. Maybe this distinguished audience will point out some downside here. Lastly, how should we unmask the ABC effect? Remember I said that committed warming is about 2.4 degrees. Again, using IPCC models, we have only seen 0.6 degree warming. So if you rapidly reduce the mirrors, we'll see another degree and a half, no matter what we do with the CO2. So we have to unmask it, same care as we give for decommissioning nuclear devices. Let me point out what's happening. Just look at Germany. See, this is the total SO2 emission. The SO2 is the major mirror, source of that mirror, cooling aerosol. Showing emission in 1919-2005, Germany and UK have cut down their per capita emission by a factor of 8 to 10. So we know it can be done on a 10-year time scale. So if all of us do the same thing, China and US and India, we're going to see this warming in the next 20, 30 years. But the worst image you would carry from what I'm saying is, oh, let's keep the coal up there. No, I'm not saying that. Because the coal emission has got problems. It's got this ABC, it's got health impacts, acid rain issues. All I'm saying is that when we focus on SO2, Please also focus on black carbon. What's happening, for example, because the SO2 was drawn rapidly, 
and Europe also switched from OECD countries, switched from coal to gas, they have become the major, of, according to a study published by the University of Illinois three years ago, if you look at the last 15 years of rapid warming, the model suggests OECD countries were the dominant contributors to the warming because others were emitting these mirrors at the same time as the greenhouse gases. So there are implications here. Okay? And, and so likewise, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk now about, because per energy extract, coal puts out 60% more CO2. So there's a reason to switch from coal to natural gas. Because remember, the CO2 stays up long. We have to do that switch. But when we do that switch, we are going to accelerate the warming in the shorter term, the next 10, 30 years time scale, because coal doesn't, coal puts SO2, whereas natural gas doesn't. Okay? So I just want to wrap up that what we thought of as three separate problems, the greenhouse gases, global warming, ozone depletion, you know, CFCs is a major greenhouse gas. That impacts, has a huge impact on climate and air pollution. They are all interconnected problems. What you do with one will impact here and here. So that's, we need to think of this in a holistic sense, particularly the policymakers. Thank you. Your eyes, I'll get my glasses. Oh. <laughs> Just do the full screen. Uh, Should we see it somewhere? Uh, oh, we've got to get rid of this. Uh, how, how do we quit out of another Windows person? Uh, how do we quit out of? Do you know? Just, yeah. This, but this is the wrong slideshow. This is still wrong. Do you know how to quit from here? Okay. You want to exit there? Yes. Okay. And then you just have to, I think, that's your answer. No, down here. Oh, there we go. Okay. That's a PDF. Yeah, yeah, I got it. That's right. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Sort of like the light bulb joke, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Ron, for that really good talk. Um, I'm going to switch gears and talk about another impact and of another pollutant, uh, carbon dioxide. So I'm going to t discuss the effects of carbon dioxide on human health through its um, effects on air pollution. And uh, look, not only in the US, but then look in California and then look at 
Los Angeles. And this is mostly a computer modeling uh, study results, uh, but also with some comparison with data. And it has some significant policy implications, which I'll explain uh, right up front. Although you, with the screen, you might not be able to read this, so I'll try to explain this to you. So the policy implications up front are that you're all aware that there is a, uh, California recently requested a waiver from the federal EPA uh, to allow California to be able to control its own CO2 emissions. And under the Clean Air Act, they have to request a waiver from the EPA. Uh, previously, EPA had uh, suggested that they didn't have the authority to even consider the waiver. And so there was a, went to the, there was a Supreme Court case that uh, said through Massachusetts versus EPA that said that uh, the EPA could consider uh, a waiver request by California and if California's request would be granted, then other states could also uh, control CO2 as well. But California has to be granted a waiver first. So then California requested this waiver. Um, there were hearings, and uh, the waiver was ultimately denied on December 19th, right before Christmas last year. And the, these were, it turns out, on March 6th, the EPA administrator, Stephen Johnson, uh, provided, the, he provided a document giving the reasons for the denial of the waiver. And I went through the document and really came up with two points that his decision was based on. There are really two kind of, well, scientific points that he made, or he said he made that uh, for reasons for denying the waiver. And, well, the red part is the text and the, the purple is kind of a summary of what he's really saying, but I'll try to say it because I know you can't read this. Um, basically, he's saying that uh, carbon dioxide May, may cause air pollution health problems, but he can only grant a waiver if the air pollution health problems in California exceed those in other states. And so it, from global, if globally emitted carbon dioxide, if there's a bigger impact in California than other states, then he might be able to consider it. But he actually said, well, even if that were the case, unless carbon dioxide actually that's emitted locally in California has an impact on local air pollution, he can't also uh, he, uh, permit the waiver. In other words, uh, the, he's saying that carbon dioxide from other states mixed globally, just like carbon dioxide from California, and the other states' air pollution has just as much impact on air pollution in California as California's air pollution. Other pollutants, such as carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, NOx, they are emitted locally and affect air pollution locally. And so that's historically how air pollution regulation is done by controlling local air pollution emissions that affect local air quality. He's saying carbon dioxide emissions emitted locally don't have uh, local air quality impacts any more than some other states. So Alabama's air, uh, CO2 emissions have just as much impact on California air pollution as California's CO2 emissions. So it turns out, coincidentally, that on the first issue, which was whether globally emitted CO2 affected California differentially uh, from the CO2 from other states. I had been doing some research that, well, it started several years ago, but it is uh, partly funded eventually by the EPA um, as well, looking at that issue. And about the same time, just uh, within a week, well, that the work that I did on this first issue uh, came out and was accepted for publication, it was eventually published. And it actually did address the very first issue from a scientific point of view, whether CO2 emitted globally had a differential impact on California's versus other states' air pollution. 
And then subsequently, I've looked at the second issue, whether locally emitted CO2 has an impact on air pollution. And I have some results that I'll show you here today. So I want to discuss these two issues and kind of the science behind it, behind them. So let's first look at well, what's from a very kind of a, what's called a box model calculation, which is actually an exact solution to chemical equations for several, several hundred chemical equations. What's the effect of temperature changes and uh, water vapor changes on ozone, which is one of the main pollutants that you'd find in smog? The two main pollutants we'll consider in terms of health effects are ozone and particulate matter, which comprises of a lot of different com compounds, but also their carcinogens of concern. So actually to address those as well. But here I just want to focus on ozone for a second to see, because carbon dioxide, the theory would be that carbon dioxide affects temperatures, temperatures affect water vapor and clouds and, and rainfall. And how do these all feed back to air pollution? So what this shows is that um, two conditions, under high air pollution up here and low air pollution, which we'd find in kind of cleaner air, rural air down here. And what it says is that when you increase water vapor, and by the way, there are two curves here for each case. One is at one temperature and the other is at one degree higher. In this low case, the two curves fall right on top of each other. So there's no effect really of the temperature. But let's start with water vapor. As you increase water vapor, if, if you are in polluted air, have the higher the ozone without anything else changing. This is just Okay, um, so with high, when you have polluted air, higher water vapor increases ozone. But in clean air, there's actually no change or decrease of ozone, slight decrease. But people live in polluted air. And so it turns out this is very relevant because where people live, uh, higher, temp higher water vapor will increase ozone. But where people don't live, you're not gonna have much of an effect. The other thing is that at higher temperatures, you'll have more ozone also in polluted air. But there's no change in clean air. And the reason is also chemical, mostly because there's this compound called peroxyacetyl nitrate, which is an irritant in smog, that at slightly higher temperatures, it breaks down into NO2 and an organic gas, and these produce ozone. And, that's, and there are other compounds that are similar that have a similar uh, breakdown effect at higher temperatures. Okay, so independently, higher temperatures 
or, well, water vapor and higher temperatures increase ozone where the air is polluted. There are other impacts of temperature changes on ozone. For example, in vegetated areas, like in the southeast US, you'll find that higher temperatures increase uh, organic gas emissions from trees, such as isoprene and the monoterpenes. And this has an impact too. So I'm going to then discuss three-dimensional model simulations. And this is really the only way you can determine a cause and effect relationship. I mean, measurements, you can determine correlations. But the only way you can demonstrate that something is causing something else in a three-dimensional atmosphere is through numerical model simulations. But in order, you have to verify a model simulation uh, with some data. And I'm just going to show a couple slides comparing the model with some data, just so you don't think I'm just running a simulation and I just want you to believe it. So this, uh, this, these are comparisons on the global scale of precipitation. Here's the data for precipitation data. And here's the, the model precipitation. And you can't really see very well again. But you know, this is a pretty good, on a global scale, a relatively coarse resolution. Because I'm going to show you results at high resolution in a minute. But this is at coarse resolution. You're produ producing not only the magnitude, almost exactly 2.66 versus 2.65 is the mean in, for this one year. But the actual spatial variation of where the precipitation is occurring. So let's look at, at a specific location in California. For 30 days straight, every hour, at some specific locations of different parameters, like here's air pressure, ozone, temperature, relative humidity. And so it's comparing. There's a, the solid line is the model, and dashed line is data. This shows that this is predicting the weather for 30 days straight which the common thought is you can only predict the weather seven days in advance. That's not true. I mean, this, should, this demonstrates that you can predict certain parameters. I'm going to say you can do it all the time, and you can't. That you can do it at least once. <laughs> so if you can do it once, it's possible, right? Because this is what it is. I mean, there is no data simulation during this period. This was just a model simulation comparing, starting with initial conditions, moving forward 30 days. And you're comparing every hour at an exact location with the data for 30 days. And it's predicting very well. But I mean, this won't occur all the time. But just it indicates that the model can predict some parameters pretty accurately in some places. Here's solar radiation in a February in California for 28 days straight. And here's a blow up of four of these days. And this reduction of the solar radiation is due only to clouds presence. So it indicates the model is able to predict the presence and magnitude of cloud reduction due to sunlight. Anyway, this is just to illustrate that the model can predict pretty accurately. And so that would tend to mean that the results are going to be more reliable than if you can't predict the, the data pretty accurately. So let's look, though, at what's the effect on the global scale. So here's a some simulation results on the global scale, but then focusing down on the US. So looking at the effects of globally emitted CO2 on health. In, Cal in the US. And so the perturbation is the emissions of CO2 and the anthropogenic loading. So from pre-industrial CO2 to today, uh, in terms of both the emissions and the amount in the atmosphere. And this shows the difference. These are all difference plots between two simulations with and without CO2. So that's the only thing changed in the model is the anthropogenic emission loading of CO2. And this is. With CO2 minus without gives you higher temperatures over the US, which red is higher, blue is lower. Um, you get higher water vapor, as you expect, because you're evaporating more soil water. 
you're evaporating some clouds, but also ocean water, but it's mostly soil water. And, uh, you get higher precipitation, and that's observed in the 20th century due to higher temperatures. Because of the higher temperatures, as I mentioned, you get higher organic gas emissions, mostly in the southeast. That's what this is. Isoprene emissions go up because of higher temperatures. By the way, this is zero here, so you're getting, even though the, emission, the temperatures aren't increasing so much down here, they're still, they're within, they're still up to one degree higher. This red here is up to two, two and a half degrees higher. That's, these are in Celsius, by the way, which is 1.8 Fahrenheit is one degree Celsius. So you get higher isoprene, which a lot of it decays to formaldehyde, so you get an increase of, and you also get acetaldehyde, both carcinogens. But the organic gases also convert to secondary organic matter, and so you get aerosol secondary organic matter also along the coast where you get this higher isoprene and mo more monoterpenes, which aren't shown here, along the coast. But you do get higher precipitation, which rains out particle matter, so that's why you get these blue spots here is due to the extra precipitation. So the aerosols, while you get some things increasing them, rainfall decreases them, not as much of an increase as you'll find compared with ozone. Benzene, well, you shouldn't expect any change, but the thing is what happens when you have global warming, you increase the air temperature more than the ground temperature. So that slows down vertical dispersion and also slows down the horizontal winds. And that actually causes pollutants to build up near the surface. So you get a higher benzene concentration, also aerosols, because they, you slow down the dispersion. They just last longer near the surface. And benzene is a carcinogen. Also, butadiene also goes up slightly. I mean, this isn't a very big increase, by the way. But it does increase slightly. Uh, you get aerosol nitrate because another impact is the higher water vapor in many places triggers a higher relative humidity, which allows more dissolution of nitric acid into particles and causes the, par causes the particles to grow larger. So there are really three things that increase these particles. They get the, higher dis the greater reduction of dispersion, you get the higher relative humidity and the greater secondary organic gas formation, but you get offsetting impacts of higher uh, precipitation. But the higher water vapor, remember, and the higher temperatures and the higher biogenic gas emissions due to higher temperatures increase the ozone. Here's Los Angeles, this red spot, and here's the southeast, which you can see that the reason the ozone's increasing there is the same place where the aerosol secondary organics increasing because you get all this additional organic gas from the um, isoprene monoturbines, but you also get some additional water vapor, um, which is there's also an increase here, although it's not as large as up here. But if you then map the population onto, onto the aerosol, particle changes and the ozone changes, what you find is, and then you apply health effects data, you get additional health effects due to cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, asthma, hospitalizations, emergency room visits. But just a, a sum in terms of the deaths, the additional mortality is about 1,000 people per year in the U.S. per 1 degree Kelvin or 1.8 Fahrenheit with a range between 350 and 1,800. But this compares with the background death rate in the U.S. of about 50,000 per year. So it's a, maybe a 2% increase per one degree Kelvin. Uh, and about 60% of that is due to particles and 40% due to ozone. Now, if you do a simple extrapolation, 
worldwide, and this is not from any simulations, just literally sim, uh, extrapolating by population, you get about 22,000 worldwide per one degree Kelvin per year. But this is probably conservative because remember the air pollution increases the most where the air pollution is already bad, and there are many cities in the world that are much more polluted than in the United States, and where the population is very dense. So you expect the impact to be even greater on a global scale. So then what's the differential effect by states? Well, you'll notice, first of all, that you know, California is pretty red here in terms of the ozone, and also in terms of particulate matter. Uh, well, California has six of the 10 most polluted cities in the US. And if you go back to what, well, this is what uh, Mr. Johnson said was his first reason denying the waiver that there's really no impact of globally emitted, no differential impact of globally emitted CO2 on California's health versus any other state's health. Well, in fact, from this study, which is really actually the only study that has addressed this issue, isolating CO2, there are a lot of studies that have looked at the effects of global warming agents on ozone, but none have isolated CO2's effect. And none of those, even the ones that have isolated the global warming agents, have actually mapped health effects data for the whole US. There's one study that looked at health effects of ozone on the East Coast due to future global warming, but not historic global warming. So this is really the only study that has actually looked at this issue well, California, but it finds that 30% of the deaths are due, were, that were found here, were in California, which has only 12% of the population. Thus, there was a differential effect of California of CO2, specifically, compared with other states. And this, so this actually addresses that uh, first issue. But then, so what's the second issue? The second issue was whether locally emitted CO2 in, Cal in California affects air pollution in California. So here's some measurements of CO2 in Salt Lake City. And because these were easily available, I'm showing these. But it shows, well, the background CO2 is about 385 parts per million globally. So in a city like Salt Lake City, you can get, and these are measurements in downtown Salt Lake City right here, the average is between 420 to 440 parts per million. So you get it, and to compare the industrial CO2 is about 280 parts per million. So the average in a city is a significant fraction, almost 50% of the total difference between anthropogenic and today's CO2, higher. So there's a significantly elevated CO2 in cities, and this is a moderate sized city. Even in Kennecott, which is outside of the city here, you've got elevated CO2 of about 390 to 395. So I wanted to see, well, what's the effect of locally emitted CO2 in California on California's air pollution? So these are ongoing simulations, but I have some results here. So the left side are results for August, September, and the right side is for February. Now I'm starting with just looking at the change of the CO2. In this case, I'm not perturbing the background CO2, they're, in both cases, they're the same. The only thing that's different here is just the emissions, the local emissions of carbon dioxide. And what it shows here is if you just over two months only, in this case, or one month in this case, if all you do is change the emissions of CO2 at the sources, you get this, start getting this change in the CO2 in the air. And this is the column. Now, the column, this is near the surface. So the surface values will change, but it, 
uh, significantly, and you won't see as much spatial variation like in the Central Valley here, but the column will start to spread out more. The changes in the column will, will be larger. So you start already getting this mixing to the larger scale, but because you have continuous emissions, you always have higher concentrations in the cities of the carbon dioxide. So what's the impact of this? Well, in terms of ground temperatures, it's really interesting. You've got a totally different impact in the Central Valley versus Los Angeles because of the soil moisture. In the summer, the soil moisture is very dry. I mean, their soil is very dry, so you have very little moisture. So you start increasing temperature just a little bit, and that evaporates a little more water, which really makes it easier to heat the ground more with direct sunlight. And so you get this positive feedback that really spirals to increase the temperatures of the Central Valley ground. This is ground temperature here, quite rapidly. But in Los Angeles, there's actually not much of a temperature increase. There's a little bit, but it's not very much. Because you have so much, you have much higher soil moisture there. So the evaporation doesn't help so much. And plus, you evaporate more water from the ocean, which then comes inland. And so you actually increase the water, atmospheric water, a lot more. So you get a higher atmospheric water over Los Angeles not so much over the Central Valley, but you get higher temperatures over the Central Valley, not so much over Los Angeles. But remember, both increases of water and increases of temperature independently increase ozone. Now, in February, you're not getting much impact of just the CO2 change. You're, there's kind of, this is, these are small amounts. These are an order of magnitude smaller than in August, so you can't see it. And the water vapor is also an order of magnitude smaller, much smaller effect in, in February. But there is still going to be some effect, especially on particles in February. The higher temperatures in August trigger higher isoprene along the coast because you have vegetation there, which triggers higher formaldehyde. And, but the other thing is the higher temperatures trigger slightly higher energy use, which triggers slightly more emissions from power plants. The ozone, as I mentioned, because you have higher temperatures in the valley, you get higher ozone here. And because you have more water vapor here, you have higher ozone in Los Angeles. And here's where the additional deaths occur. But this, there's a number here. The total additional deaths just over these two months is on the order of 135 additional deaths, just due to CO2 alone on the annual average, if you extrapolate these, these, average these two numbers in February and August. So there is this local impact of ozone. In terms of particles, well, you reduce the dispersion because you slow down the wind slightly, which in increases things like black carbon. You'll get some higher secondary organic matter from the additional isoprene. And you also get some more nitrate. And other there are many other compounds I'm not showing here. But the, you get additional particle deaths, which are also occurring in February because of reduced dispersion. Because you do get slightly higher temperatures there, higher, slightly higher water vapor, not as much as in, the, as in uh, August. But anyway, you, you're increasing the death rate. Now let's go to even higher resolution over Los Angeles. This is at about four kilometer resolution. If we just look at changing CO2 emissions in Los Angeles, here's the CO2 column changing. And so that's spread out. Here's, there's really the center, the center of where the CO2 is increasing is right here, but it's spreading out over time because of the column. And this is one month, by the way, in August. Uh, there's a, as a result of this temper, the CO2 being spread out, the change being spread out, you get higher temperatures on average in August. There's higher ozone, which actually most of this ozone increases where the water vapor increases, although it's not shown here. There's higher particulate matter. And then 
you got higher ozone-related deaths, and here, here's where the deaths occur, additional deaths due to particulate matter. Okay. So to conclude from this, if we go back to Mr. Johnson's uh, second reason for denying the California waiver request, he's saying that California cars are not a causal factor for local low zone levels any more than greenhouse gas emissions from other sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. But in fact, these results suggest otherwise that locally emitted carbon dioxide is a causal factor in increasing local ozone, particulate matter, and carcinogens. So to conclude, uh, increases in water vapor and temperatures from higher carbon dioxide separately increase ozone more with higher ozone. Thus, global warming may exacerbate ozone most in already polluted areas. Global emi globally emitted carbon dioxide may increase U.S. annual air pollution deaths by around 1,000 with an uncertainty range, and cancers by a small amount per 1 degree Celsius or Kelvin rise in CO2-induced temperatures, with about 40% due to ozone and 60% due to particulate matter, which increases from enhanced stability, higher relative humidity, and also enhanced organic gas emissions. Increases worldwide would be on the order of 22,000 deaths, which is actually much more than due to enhanced storminess. Because, I mean, the baseline death rate due to enhanced storminess worldwide, well, not due to enhanced, due to storminess, tropical storms and tornadoes combined, is around 35 to 38,000, the baseline. Whereas the baseline air pollution death rate worldwide is on the order, if you count indoor plus outdoors, you know, above 2 million, 2 to 3 million per year. So the perturbations due to air pollution changes are going to be much greater than the perturbations due to storminess changes although probably not as much as due to heat stress increases due to global warming. Uh, locally emitted CO2 is a causal factor in increasing local ozone, if these results are right, and also in particular matter and carcinogens and their related health effects in California. Well, thank you very much. Because we're taping this, I'm going to ask everybody who's got a question to come up and speak into the microphone, then hand it off to the speaker. The other thing I'm going to be uh, persistent about is that uh, I want to make sure you have a question and uh, not a lengthy speech. Uh, so please, have a question and have consideration for everybody here as well. Um, any questions? I had one to begin with, maybe to get the ball rolling for you, Ram. Um, uh, you talked about the missing committed warming that should be on the order of 2.4 degrees centigrade that's already built into the system. In other words, if we shut everything off today, we should see 2.4, but for this masking effect. But if we stripped out, we were successful, maybe 100% efficient in stripping that out, we would then realize about 1.2 degrees warming additional. Is that right? Okay. My question was easy. Um, anybody else? And watch the wires. This is a mess. I have a question um, for Dr. Ramanathan. Um, is there a way, you talked about the difficulty of kind of um, the sulfate masking effect. 
um, with reducing black carbon emissions. Is there currently a way of uh, reducing black carbon emissions from coal plants without reducing sulfate emissions at the same time? Um, and also, you know, if, if we're kind of uh, looking to do that, it seems kind of a short step towards geoengineering if we're kind of deliber almost deliberately putting sulfate into the atmosphere. Kind of what's your view on that? Yeah, I, I have my own skepticism about geoengineering. But uh, in fact, uh, we have cut down uh, black carbon emissions from coal combustion by going towards pulverized coal. It's when you, when you burn solid stuff, the interior is not exposed to oxygen. So, it, you know, it's poor combustion, which gives rise to uh, black carbon. So if you look at combustion region, the black carbon comes down. Art. I think what I want to comment on is the fact media as well as in politics beating on we have nothing to say for or against it. But my own personal bias is we should be focusing on the black carbon emission. By all means, cut down sulfur emission, but don't cut down the sulfur and leave the black carbon up there. That would be the most uh, you know, uh, damaging thing we can do to the planet. Uh, this is also for Professor Ramanathan. Uh, I was surprised to see the per capita emissions of black carbon in, in the U.S. were as high as they are. Uh, could you tell us where the low-hanging fruit is to reduce those emissions? Uh, that's first question. Second question is, what was the source of data that you were using to, to build that uh, uh, emission estimate? And third, uh, should EPA be requiring sources to uh, uh, report their, their annual black carbon emissions so one can track that, those emissions much more accurately. I'll make a quick comment to that, but I'm, I'd be curious to see what my colleague Jacobson says. He's more of an expert on, the, uh, on that side. Uh, I myself, it's just I was downloading available information on black carbon emission. I was very surprised when I looked at the per capita emission because I think of the uh, black carbon as a poor man's pollution. And you know, we are the most well-developed country. What is going on? I I'm puzzled. The other thing you have to, I, I want to comment on is that uh, the data on the black carbon emission are, is uncertain by plus or minus factor of three. To me, it's atrocious. This is something, you know, it's a question of my, my own feeling is, putting a few million dollars extra to pin down this emission. The, you know, the science is there. It's just not done properly. And, and but, so I would turn to Mark Jacobson. Why is our per capita emission so high? Or is it high? Um, well, I, th I think part of it is in the emission inventory. I think there's, there are underestimates of the emissions from the, based on emission inventories, inventories in Asia, specifically China. Um, there are a lot of sources. There are like a million 
unregulated uh, businesses that just burn coal in just in local area around Beijing alone. Um, there is so there. It's pretty well speculated that the emissions of black carbon and other pollutants are lower than the emission inventories that we all use. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but like in the US, the main emissions from of black carbon are from construction equipment, off-road vehicles. Diesel, on-road diesel has been regulated more and more, um, but there are still, you know, there's still quite a bit. We don't have diesel passenger vehicles, but we have trucks and buses. And that's, whereas in Europe, it's, most, it's a lot of tr uh, passenger vehicles have, so the diesel emissions in Europe are actually much higher from passenger vehicles. But the low-hanging fruit in the U.S. is uh, from off-road equipment and, and also ships and some aircraft as well. Thank you. I think one other point uh, I want to add is that forest fires is also a major source of black carbon and soot. And in the West Coast, in California, as you know, we have had more frequent forest fires. And, and, and there's a study from UC Davis attributing to climate change. It's becoming drier. So we have drier, you have more fires, putting more black carbon. So that's also another source. Should, should, uh, you didn't get the third question. Should EPA be requiring sources to report their black carbon? I, 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 so I, my familiarity with that part is low, but if they are not doing that, they should be. I agree with you. They should be requiring reporting black carbon emissions. This is first a question uh, for Ram. Uh, and, and if you went over this in your presentation, I'm sorry I came late. Um, why doesn't the framework convention cover black carbon? And then, um, okay. The second question is, is for J Professor Jacobson. Um, we've in the past sort of thought about carbon emissions as one ton of CO2 here is the same as a ton of CO2 there, especially when you talk about offset programs and planting trees or, or whatever program you're doing. Does your, does your research sort of change that dynamic and more about um, the air pollution aspects, and the, the, we change the paradigm that one ton in LA is different than one ton in, in Greenland or something? So I'll respond to the question of why is black carbon not in the UN framework of convention? Um, first of all, I'm not unhappy about that because this whole science is unfolding. And, and most of the papers, if you saw in mind, was all published in the last 10 years. It's not that we discovered the black carbon effect in the last 10 years. We didn't know the magnitude and the science. The new satellites and the new instrumentation, new aircraft is what giving us some confidence to come and speak to this body. Five years ago, I would not have come here with my... Didn't have confidence in them. Uh, to answer the question of whether one ton of CO2 emitted here is different from one ton emitted somewhere else. Yes, it is. Although for the purposes of air pollution, it is. And purposes of climate change, it is also, because even the, there are local climate effects due to the local CO2. Now, whether you want it, I mean, there are also going to be global effects of the local CO2 as well. But 
I would, I would say that you do want to consider it because it's, I mean, CO2 just doesn't mix instantaneously to the global atmosphere. I mean, it mixes pretty quickly. However, there's so, much, there's so many local sources of the CO2 that are continuously emitting that you always have elevated CO2 over cities. And these are having local impacts. So, yeah, it's, it is a simplification. I mean, now, given that everything that carbon accounting methods are based on kind of big bulk numbers, you know, it's not that easy to actually determine what the value of that CO2 is. I'm not saying that's easy, but there is going to be a difference. And I think in terms of air pollution especially, uh, we should start to consider the effects of local CO2 as, as having impacts on local health. Just to say something nice about EPA, they have a rather good success to reduce carbon emissions, black carbon emissions from uh, road vehicles. Has, had, has that happened? How far? Yeah, um, well, there have been regulations in federal regulations and California state regulations, which have been even tighter, that have had a big impact. And so actually, the, if you look at the magnitude, I mean, if you look at Rom's first top graph, I mean, the emissions in the U.S. are relatively, pardon? They've come down. Yeah, they've come down quite a bit. And so they're much lower than they used to be. And the total emissions are, you know, we don't see like big black smoke plumes all over like we used to in the 1930s and, and 40s. Or even in the 80s. Well, we still see, but there is still brown clouds like in cities like Los Angeles. Um, so it has gone down quite a bit, but there is more to, we can do. Um, and there, is, there are still sources that are either, they're being considered for regulation but haven't been fully regulated. Some aren't even being really considered, like aircraft uh, soot. I don't think there are any regulations being even considered for that, and that's an important source. Because, for example, aircraft, even though it's not a large magnitude of that soot, it's, it's emitted mostly elevated in the air, so it doesn't get removed very fast. And the average lifetime of black carbon is anywhere from one week to four weeks, usually. But if you're emitting it higher up above the rain, that, that can last much longer. And so even though there's lower emissions from aircraft, it's an important source. I'm glad Mark talked about the aircraft emissions. And we don't even know how to factor them in. I mean, the models do that, observations-wise. My little unmanned aircraft won't go beyond 10,000 feet. And there could be a you know, big issue there, I don't know. But as far as the EPA, I want to point out to you, if you look at our emissions of black carbon in the US from 1930s and compare that to now, it's come down by a factor of three at least, two to three. So it's, you know, there's been a major reduction. So, uh, but again, the whole emission data is uncertain by a factor of two to three. We need to focus on that somehow, to pin it down more. And as Mark says, uh, emissions from China and India could be a major underestimate there. The uncertainty of factor two or three globally, but regionally too, just to talk about US emissions, 
you know, one of the well-known uh, groups in doing this regional modeling, uh, in addition to Jacobson, is uh, Greg Carmichael at University of Iowa. So we teamed up with them and did an aircraft experiment measuring aerosol black carbon concentrations off of uh, Northern California. And, and the model and, uh, and the data were uncertain by, a, uh, you know, they differed by a factor of uh, two, just because of the uncertainty in the local emission. Because we were looking at plumes coming from the US, not coming from China, and there was huge gaps. Thank you. I'm Holmes Hummel with Congressman Jay Inslee's office, and I'm interested in the policy implications of the science. I'm convinced of the significance of the problem, and I'm glad that you're here to share these insights. However, I'm left with a question about the relative balance between black carbon and sulfates between the industrialized and the developing countries, as that leads to the international negotiations that need to be supported here. So, Rama, your graph that said 75% of the black carbon coming from this, you know, Amazon to China zone, and yet the primary source of the sulfates, or there's a higher ratio of sulfates from the industrialized countries based on their fossil fuel consumption. Your caution to us was don't draw down the, uh, the sulfates without also drawing down the, the black carbon. That means that we have to have, if I'm asking this from my understanding, we have to have commensurate even more aggressive action in the developing country zone over that 75% where there are lower sulfates, almost before we start drawing down sulfates uh, that are from fossil fuel sources. Is that correct? Do I have an understanding about how intricately and integrated this international piece has to be? Yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, a uh, globally uh, connected problem. I think, uh, by and large, uh, um, the SO2 emission used to be coming from US and uh, Western Europe, but now that balance has shifted both for SO2 emission and black carbon emission, the, uh, developing regions. But what's happening is that uh, the OECD countries are pushing rapidly to bring down their sulfur emission, SO2. So in answer to your question, it's not say, if you look at, my focus is on what's gonna happen next 20, 30 years. Okay, and if you focus on that time period and, and find out why this rapid warming trend over the last 15 years, this is not my work, it's work at the University of Illinois and other groups, that's suggesting, they're suggesting this because of the drawdown of the SO2 from the OECD countries. But if you look at what's driving the energy consumption, you know, 75% of the growth in fossil fuel combustion is going to come from developing nations. But they are doing that through coal. So if you look at the contribution to CO2, they're going to be major. But if you look at the contribution to temperature change, they're also putting up dirt, consuming dirty coal. So, they, so it's how you account that. And so, you know, going back to this, yes, if we, as we draw down our SO2, we got to work with our Asian colleagues and South America and Africa because the major source of black carbon in, is the it's savanna burning. 
But these are all coming from poverty, so it's linked with poverty alleviation. So I really think of opportunities here. So yeah, we need to think of this problem as a holistic problem. Right now, there are groups working on CO2, there's groups working on sulfur, there's groups working on black carbon. The science is telling you, all of you need to sit together. Thank you. Maybe I can make one comment on that. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think we have to also consider that because of the health effects of the SO2, because it goes to sulfate, that you really don't want to, let's say, not reduce, I think you mentioned this in your talk, you don't want to not reduce SO2 just because of the climate impact. It's, I think it, so it's, the best strategy is obviously to reduce the SO2 and the black carbon simultaneously, but also with CO2 simultaneously. I mean, th this is ultimately the best strategy because you're gonna, the health impacts are huge of these, of the particles. I mean, it's, those are the most damaging component of air pollution and, you know, kill between two to three and a half million people or whatever that number I gave before per year worldwide. So you really need to reduce those particles and that requires reducing SO2 and the black carbon. But in order, because as you reduce the sulfate, you're going to increase the temperatures, you need to reduce the CO2 simultaneously with the black carbon. So strategies that replace all the combustion emissions simultaneously, such as going to uh, different types of vehicles that don't emit, don't combust, different you know, stoves that are, don't combust, going away from combustion is the solution. Just a quick comment to that. Let's talk about uh, ships. When you talk about SO2 emission, the ship emitting SO2, someone asked about geoengineering, is okay because there are no humans involved and it's cooling the ocean. And that's a thought which people are considering. But at the same time, I'll tell you about my personal worry about this Arctic sea ice retreating. You know, the passage is opening and I read newspapers, a great opportunity for shipping. But shipping is the worst culprit for black carbon emission. I'm concerned there'll be more ships across the Arctic dumping black carbon. And sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, it could just accelerate it so fast. So we have to think about that. The Arctic sea ice, black carbon, and the passageway opening. Someone needs to estimate how much black carbon is coming from the ships and going to deposit on that sea ice. And what is the impact on that? Yeah, my question is for um, Mark Jacobson. I'm Stephanie Herring from the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming on the House side. And uh, we think about rising temperature from global warming, and we think about it in terms of global average temperature. But as you mentioned, cities sort of live in these bubbles of higher CO2 levels. And is there any work being done to think about how living or having large areas that have concentrated CO2 levels in the range of 500, 550 may impact um, temperature increases in those particular regions and thinking about that in terms of climate change adaptation and heat waves and can we disentangle those impacts from urban heat island effects? Well, the CO2 trapping over cities is kind of on top of the urban heat island because so the cities are already warmer because they're, they're urban surfaces and there's less evaporation of the water from concrete than soil. And so it's really exacerbating the urban heat island so the urban heat island would tend to, in some cases, actually increase the air pollution itself, but this would cause even greater effect. Uh, I haven't actually looked at this, you know, the separate effects 
and so I can't answer really specifically. But yeah, there should be, there's, it's, it'll be on top of, of the urban heat island effect. My, my question is for uh, either of you. Uh, my name is Dawn Fenton and I'm with the Diesel Technology Forum. And my question is, in, in light of the improvements that have happened in diesel technology over the last several years, and in particular with the uh, adoption of ultra-low uh, sulfur fuel here in the United States, um, I'm wondering uh, what, if any, that those advances in diesel technology taken together with the fact that uh, diesel vehicles are 20 to naturally more fuel efficient, 20 to 40 percent more fuel efficient, and thus emit less CO2 than their gasoline counterparts. I'm wondering if you think that there's any impact at all that uh, that would happen from a from a CO2 and carbon perspective if we dieselized our fleets, similar to what. Uh, the Europeans have done, and if and if there is an effect, what that what would that effect be? Would it be noticeable at all, or or not? Um, well, I th I think there would be a big problem if we dieselized our passenger vehicle fleet. Um, the even though there's a better mileage generally with diesel, there's also a higher carbon content of diesel. And so, and there's also, it's more dense fuel. And so, you're, you're, that 20% improvement, the average improvement of, let's say, 20%, well, 15% of that gets lost because of the higher carbon content and because of the, um, the de density change. So, you're left with actually only a few percent difference between the diesel and the gasoline. But then, the low sulfur fuel doesn't actually reduce the black carbon emissions, it just reduces the sulfur emissions. So your black, so in order to reduce the black carbon emissions, you need a particle trap, So, which is good because that reduces significantly the particle emissions. However, the addition of a trap increases uh, the fuel requirements by five to 8%. And so you end up putting out more CO2 and you really eliminate the benefit of the CO2, but you get the particles down. Now, but even with the trap, you're reducing 90% of your particles or 95%, but it's still higher particle emissions than your gasoline vehicle. And so the, it's, even though they're both low, it's still about two to three times higher because gasoline particle emissions are, are really low, new ones. I mean, old ones still emit. So the problem in Europe, they have, you know, dieselized their fleet, and as a result, they actually have significantly higher particle emissions, even with lots of particle traps. And that's why the death rates in Europe are actually much higher. Because I mean, in the US, we have 50,000 people a year dying. But in Europe, it's about 300,000 people a year across, across Europe, including Eastern Europe. And most of that's due to particle emissions. So I don't, and if you look at even the best cars that are available in the US in terms of their mileage, I mean, it's, it's really the gasoline electric hybrids get better mileage than even the best diesels. Now, that might be because which diesels are being marketed here. But it really depends on which cars you're comparing. and. It turns out with the best mileage vehicles is the hybrid ones, and those have lower particle emissions and lower um, CO2 emissions than the diesel. So, I, you know, that could change. But it's not so. It's not so clear cut. I guess is what my point. The other point I want to add to that. Um, 
I'm not expert on this, maybe Mark can comment on it. We also have to worry about emissions of NOx and CO, even diesel high temperature combustion, because NOx leads to more ozone, is a major greenhouse gas, as you saw, it's about, you know. So I think the point we are learning now, that's why I ended my last slide with these three globes. So far we've been talking about, you know, coal sulfates and CO2 separately. We, not, we need to track down the lifetime of a fuel. What is gas doing, natural gas, to climb CO2, ozone, sulfates, black carbon? And then we look at the net effect, fuel by fuel. Not in terms of atmospheric composition, that's what we've been doing, so that's why we are on these different multiple tracks. So we need a new type of model which will do that. Great, I'm gonna to get to you in just a second. Um, so what I'm hearing is a lot of complexity in terms of policy formulation. In other words, if you wanna rein this in, this being aerosols and black carbon, um, and I'm not sure that you're ready to write such a prescription, is that? I mean, if you were tasked with the, with the responsibility of putting together guidance for policy, could you do it? Okay, okay, just want to make sure. Great. Thank you, I'm Rafe Pomerantz with uh, Clean Air, Cool Planet. Uh, just two quick questions for Ram. One, you just to pick up something you said, you, we needed to worry about the NOx, and you mentioned CO, but then you didn't say what you, you didn't finish about carbon monoxide, so that would be helpful. The second thing is I think you had a slide on the black carbon forcing both regionally and globally. I mean, it's a regional forcing, whether it's in the Arctic or in the, uh, um, over the Asian continent or wherever. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little about the, imp the global forcing of black carbon, uh, whether it's averaged or how it works from a regional standpoint to a global standpoint. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to integrate that, uh, Rafe, with what uh, Tony said. And what is the message to convey? I, I don't completely, entirely agree with what Tony said, that we have no message to say that we have, which is, let's break it down. Remember I said, if you look at the greenhouse gases, the thickening of the blanket, that has committed the planet to about 2.4 degrees, or 2.5 degrees Celsius warming. If, as policy, I'm not as a scientist to say what is unacceptable climate change. If, as policymakers, you decide, oh, two degree warming is as far as I want to go, how do you reduce that committed warming? And again, if you focus on the next 30, 40 years, the only way you're gonna reduce that is by cutting down the concentration of short-lived greenhouse gases. What are those? Ozone and methane, okay? So that's clear. How do you cut down ozone, you know, NOx, carbon monoxide emissions, CO2, you're not going to be able to bring it down because what's up there, their life is about 100 years. It's already there. 
the long-lived CFCs, because of the Montreal Protocol, they're slowly coming down. There are numerous halocarbons. The replacement compounds, their lifetime is somewhere between 10 to 30, 40 years. And I'm not sure how much they still give us there, because you need some of these so-called replacement halocarbons. So ozone is a short-lived gas. The main distinction is short-lived gas and long-lived gases. When you cut down the emission of the precursors, they will go down. When they go down, you decrease, you decrease the thickness of the blanket. The aerosol, on the other hand, is more a masking issue. Okay, so that, that's, the aerosol then controls how fast we are going to see the committed warming. So it controls not the magnitude, but the speed with which this warming is going to descend on us. So that's where you need to keep those two things separate. So going back to your black carbon emission, our global forcing regional, we estimated region by region and then aggregated to get the global value. That's the way it's done. Our satellite data, the footprint is about 100 kilometers. And we got about 140 stations, ground stations. We assimilated. And then we got aircraft data in different places. Okay. So they are doing regionally and then aggregated. What you saw in the regional picture, which doesn't come out when you look at the global average, is that the aerosols do two things. The mirrors cut down the sunlight at the ground, cause dimming. And then this black carbon intercepts the sunlight, and it also causes dimming. Okay? So it puts heating in the air and dimming at the ground. So there are two things happening with these aerosols, heating the air, that's the electric blanket, and dimming. Those individual effects are a factor of three larger than when you add the two, because the net effect, which is the global, is a small difference between the two. And that's important because cutting down sunlight at the ground, in my personal view, is the dumbest thing we can do to the planet, even more than thickening the blanket, because Sunlight is what is used to evaporate water from the oceans. And that water goes up and falls as rain. So it is unavoidable when you cut down sunlight, you're going to cut down rain. But the greenhouse warming is trying to increase, so we are pushing the planet one way here in the extra tropics. In the tropics, we are trying to push it the other way. So how do these regional, so my, although my forcing of the black carbon, 0.9 watts per meter squared, which is 60% of the forcing from CO2, is global, but it's got, when I integrate it, go through a climate model like Jacobson, would I get the global effect? It's not clear, because there are different things happening regionally. Okay? But now, going back to Tony's question, we know that black carbon, and it falls on the snow, it's contributing to retreat. We know when black carbon heats the air and that warm air goes over the mountains, it's causing to retreat. So regionally, we know some of the issues. Uh, thanks, Ram. I, I did agree, by the way, that science had a lot to offer here. But I wanted to... Uh, sharpen my own perception of that notion. When you thought about the effect of uh, reducing to two emissions uh, in the formation of aerosols, have you taken into account that when you lower the sulfate concentrations in the aerosol, the sulfate composition, nitric acid 
can replace the sulfate concentration then, and then you won't have any effect at all. That's an excellent question, but Mark is 10 times more of an expert on this. I pass it on to him. Um, you're not going to get a change in the nitrate in the aerosol because when sul sulfate goes into small particles, and nitrate usually goes because sulfate's a stronger acid, it won't allow nitrate to go into the same particles. So the nitrate goes onto the big particles, like the sea spray and the soil dust. So if you get rid of the sulfate, you're just shifting the, the nitrate from larger particles to the smaller particles, which will, I mean, it won't have a big impact on the total nitrate mass. It just shifts them, although there will be some shifting because the bigger particles tend to get removed a little faster. However, they're not getting removed just by falling by their own weight. They're getting removed by rain. So in that sense, they'll be removed at the same rate. So you're not really changing total nitrate in the particles that way. All you're doing is shifting them to different sizes. But I'm thinking about the effect, the sulfate effect, and the nitric acid that you have mm -hmm. in the air that is available to get into, into the particles now that you don't have that sulfate. Um, no, my point is you're not going to, that same nitric acid, if with, with the sulfate, it'll, just, it'll still go to particles. It goes to the large particles. Without the sulfate, it goes to the small particles. Um. I had one last comment before I wrap it up, and that was, uh, well, I don't even know if it's a comment. But the other side benefit of getting all the particulates out of the atmosphere, perhaps simultaneously, as you were suggesting, Mark, uh, is that the uh, photovoltaics, for example, have an increased efficiency benefit by less dimming. In other words, you get rid of the dimming and you let more of that sunlight in, so you inherently increase the efficiency or the availability of sunlight. I don't know how large or small. A, a yeah, actually, there are several feedbacks to renewable energy of pollution particles. So remember that pollution particles, they slow down the winds. So when you have more pollution, you have less wind energy. It's true. <laughs> In fact, it's about 5% less wind energy in California alone because of air pollution in California. I mean, this is... The only thing I want to add to that is, first of all, the, the dimming by all models show is cutting down rainfall, making the planet dry. That alone would be... The other thing is, I've not talked about it, this is we are starting to look into it. Most of the dimming is happening in continental areas and coastal oceans, that is where most of the productivity in the ocean is, biological productivity. So when you cut down sunlight, you know, the coastal oceans are not nutrient limited, there's abundance of upwelling. So what is it doing to the biology of the ocean? It's a thing we have, we have not even looked into it. So that's another issue. I misspoke. We have one last question. All right. It was uh, mentioned earlier about the low-hanging fruit as being, you know, ships, the aircrafts, and non-road equipment. Is there a reason behind that versus highway, um, highway engines? Uh, well, it's only low-hanging in the sense that it's the least regulated. So 
highway there are highway regulations for diesel on road in the U.S. You know, pending in California, they're pretty even stronger. Doesn't mean that they they shouldn't go stronger than that. So that maybe that's also low hanging fruit. But you know, the regulators will argue well, we're already controlling those. So I think they should they should be, still be stronger regulations for on road vehicles, but go after off road and also these other ones even because they haven't been gone after before. Um, I want to thank our speakers. Uh, it's really uh, special to have these two people at the same time. As I said, this was a non-trivial task to get these two people here at the same time. But at the same time, they brought a lot of uh, substantive, uh, interesting policy implications with them as well. Um, and thank you for coming, by the way. Thanks. <laughs>